We are continuing um, in our Lent series. Uh, I think it's called Pause. We've, uh, we've lost our little thing on the screen. And uh, before we get into today's, into today's passage, I want to um, begin by asking you a question. Have you ever had one of those experiences where somebody you know quite well, or you thought you knew quite well, does something completely out of the box and forces you to kind of reevaluate or kind of rewrite your view of them? I'm sure many of us here will have done. A couple of years ago, I'm ashamed to say that this happened with our youngest son. Some of you know Joshi. We have four kids, and Josh is our youngest son. And uh, growing up as the youngest in our family, uh, there was quite a lot of chaos, but he was the one in particular, very gifted chap, but particularly sort of was orientated towards creative gifts. He was very musical. He loved drama. He was great at that kind of stuff. He actually was the one child who really loved their work at school. And uh, he wasn't particularly fussed about all the kind of outdoorsy stuff. So when his two older brothers were sort of out in the garden playing cricket, trying to kill you know, each other as they were trying to pull one over the other one, he was the one that most of the time preferred to be you know, using a musical instrument or doing something creative. He was very artistic. So nobody was more surprised than me when a couple of years ago he decided rather enthusiastically that he wanted to spend six months of his gap year in northern Canada. And one of the things that appealed to him more than anything else was the fact that he could go out for a 10-kilometer run every morning in temperatures between minus 15 and minus 30 degrees. I have to say, it totally took me by surprise when he expressed such enthusiasm about it. I had it down as a kind of gap year thing that maybe one of the other, one of his brothers might have done, but actually he went and he absolutely loved it. And I've had to kind of rewrite part of my, the way I see him and who he, who he is. He's revealed something very hidden about himself to us. And I think the passage that we're going to look at today, today's uh, Lent reading, as it were, might kind of cause some of us to slightly rethink how we see Jesus and then therefore potentially how we engage with Jesus. It's an incident that is recorded in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were all so impacted by it that it made it into their version of Jesus' life. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to dig out, uh, dig it out or fire it up on your phone if you do the whole electronic thing. And we're going to read three, four verses from Matthew, uh, gosh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 15 to 18. And it's the story of Jesus coming into the temple in Jerusalem shortly before he was crucified. And it should come up on the screen. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, so this is Jesus and his mates and the crowd of people that were following him, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out the people who were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. When the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. 
Now, we're going to dig into this in a bit, in a minute. But in order for this to kind of make sense as to what Jesus came into and was facing on that day, we just need to understand a little bit of context about what is going on here. So a very quick history lesson. In, uh, if you were a Jew, let's imagine that you were a Jew in 28 AD and you lived in rural Israel somewhere, as most people did if they didn't live in the cities, then you had to make a journey every year uh, at the season of Passover to your capital city in Jerusalem. So let's imagine a couple of characters, let's call them Nathan and Miriam for argument's sake, good Jewish names. And they would have to pack up their household every year at a Passover time, which kind of comes around at the same time of year as Easter does for us, and take their household and go on this journey to Jerusalem to worship God. They would be really excited about it because they'd be gathering at this place called the temple and they'd get to meet lots of other of their family and friends and people from their communities and people from across the land as they went into uh, Jerusalem for this incredible festival. So they'd be really excited to come to this temple, the place where God had decided to put his presence, as it were, on the earth. There was only one place before Jesus came, that you could go and meet with God, and it was the place where God's presence was, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. So if you wanted to come near to God, if you wanted to be touched by God, then you needed to go to the temple. And uh, they would go at Passover time to celebrate the fact that God had led his people under the leadership of uh, Moses out of Israel into freedom so that they could worship him. But Nathan and Miriam were probably poor like most of the Jews, and so they would have to walk on foot and make their journey. So it would take them a number of days. So imagine that, you know, the race course up the road was the place of the temple. You know, imagine the whole of England, everybody in England had to make it to the race course. Well, most people uh, would have to walk and so it would take them a number of days to make their journey. But God had said this about this particular festival when people came near to him, that the people, as they came to worship him, needed to bring a sacrifice. They needed to bring a sacrifice as they drew near to him. Why was that important? What's that all about? Well, let's just rewind a minute all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was God's home. The Garden of Eden was the place where God's presence was. And Adam and Eve, mankind was created to live in the presence of God. God walked in the garden. God was there. So it was the most amazing place. It's why it's called paradise. Because in the fullness of God's presence, there's no sickness, there's no sadness, there's no suffering, there's no disease, there's no death, there's nothing that makes us scared. None of that stuff can exist in the presence of God. So the garden was this most incredible place and it was full of joy, it was full of peace, it was full of love, it was full of life, it was full of adventure, it was full of beauty, it was full of all the stuff that our hearts long for because God was there. God's presence was in the garden and Adam and Eve got to walk with God every day. They could see him, they could touch him, they could be touched with him, they could laugh with him, they could celebrate with him. They were with God. God and God was with them. But then they fell for the lie, didn't they? Tim was just reminding us of it. They fell for the lie that there was something else out there that would make life just a little bit better for them. They fell for the lie that God was holding something back from them. So they disobeyed 
his command to stay away from the apple on the tree. They reached out for it. They colluded with the enemy. And what they thought they were doing to make their lives better actually brought devastation on them. As they began, they took the first step of building a life that was independent from God. You know the story. When they did that, immediately they lost the privilege of standing, walking, being, having access to the presence and the love of God. And as a result of their sin, the Bible says something really interesting at the end of Genesis 3. It says that God stationed two angels at the gateway to the garden and that there was a flaming sword flashing to and fro guarding that entrance to the garden. Now, I don't know if you've ever pictured what this flaming, flashing sword might look like. Sounds a bit kind of Star Wars to me as I think about it. But as Adam and Eve looked back at the garden where God was, they would see this sword moving to and fro. Is it a literal sword or not? I don't know. We don't know, but it's symbolic of something that happened in that moment when they turned their back on God, something that happened in the fabric of our universe that meant there was something barring the way back into the presence of God. How is anyone going to get past that sword? How is anyone going to find their way back into the presence of God? Now, you don't need me to tell you that there are devastating consequences of turning our backs on God. We just need to flick on the news, don't we? You know, the news is full of stories of of poverty and sickness and turmoil and conflict and betrayal and murder and all the rest of that kind of stuff. You name it. The result of trying to do life without God that began right back there. And do you know what? We don't have the option of just going, sorry, God. Sorry, we got it wrong. Can we just go back to where we all started? You know what it's like when somebody's betrayed you or somebody's cheated you. Some of us in here have been the victims of real injustice, abuse, betrayal, rejection, cheating, whatever. And when we've been on the receiving end of that kind of stuff, we know, don't we, that somebody just going, oh, sorry, can we just pick up where we left off? It doesn't do it, does it? And maybe some of you have had that actually said to you in the wake of somebody actually sort of doing something to you that has caused you incredible pain. But it's not enough to just go, sorry. There's something in us, isn't there, that screams out, no, I don't just want a sorry. And it's not that we want revenge. It's that that justice part of us, the bit of us inside that is formed in the image of God that wants justice, we know that something more is required. We know that something more is required. A gesture needs to be done. Something needs to be put right in order for restoration to happen. The flaming sword, that flaming sword at the gate of the Garden of Eden represents eternal justice. It represents eternal justice that none of us can just get back into God's presence by going, sorry, We have to go under the sword. And how can we? It's not possible. Nobody's going to survive it. 
So God, you know, that's the bit of history. God provides this intermediary solution at the temple. He's so desperate to be able to meet with his people and for people to come into his presence and be blessed by him or draw near to him that he tells his people to build this temple and he inhabits the temple behind a curtain so that his people can come near to him. Not right into his presence, but can come near to him and be blessed by him. But, he says, they have to bring a sacrifice, a symbolic animal, as it were, to uh, you know, help them to realize that actually, in order to come near to God, you've got to go through the sword. And so they would bring an animal. If they were wealthy, they were told to bring an ox or a lamb or something like that. And if they were poor, they were allowed to bring a couple of doves. So think back to Nathan and Miriam. They've traveled all the way from Chelton to Cornwall or from wherever they were, uh, rural Israel to Jerusalem. How are they going to do that? How are they going to travel for two or three days with their kids, with their, you know, whoever else was part of the party, the old people that they were looking after? You know, how were they going to bring animals with them or doves with them that were going to be okay by the time they got to the temple to sacrifice to God? Because there was this rule about sacrifices that they had to be in mint condition. And the priests had to inspect the sacrifice before you were allowed to make it. And so if they looked at your dove or they looked at your lamb or they looked at your ox and they thought, no, look, there's a scratch on his leg, the priest could say, sorry, that sacrifice isn't acceptable. You've got to buy another one. You've got to get another one. So the solution was to buy an animal at the temple. That was the solution. To buy one when they got there. Miriam and Nathan and all the other Jews, the thousands of peoples that converged on in Jerusalem could buy something, could buy their sacrifice at the temple. So all kinds of sellers and traders had set up business in the courts, in the outer courts, the kind of concourse, as it were. If you imagine the race course, the area around the stands, there were stalls all over the place. And uh, commentators suggest that there would have been thousands and thousands of animals and thousands of traders because tens of thousands of people descended on Jerusalem. But here's the thing. They charged an extortionate amount for the sacrifices. They charged an extortionate amount for the animals. Have you ever been to the airport? Yeah? And you know what it's like when you've forgotten your sun cream? You didn't buy it in Tesco's for half the price. So you have to buy it in the boots or the other chemists at the airport. And they rip you off, don't they? Because they know that you're stuffed. And if you're, if you're at the airport and you're going on holiday and you need sun cream, well, you've got to buy it from the shops at the airport. It's the same with the currency, isn't it? If you, tra- if you change your money at the airport, you get a far worse rate than if you change it at the M&S counter you know, before you leave. Well, that's what they were doing. It's like, well, Nathan and Miriam, look, they've come all this way. They've got to buy an animal. We can charge them what, we, what they like. And again, commentators suggest that they were charging 10 times the amount for each sacrifice for each animal. So Jesus arrives into this chaos. He arrives at the temple and he sees all these people and all these animals in his father's house. And something rises up within him in that moment. Something is stirred. His emotions are stirred. He's a healthy human being. And something rises within him. And according to John's version of the gospel, it says he made a whip. And he starts cracking this whip to drive out the animals and the people and the money changers. And he pushes over the tables and he pushes over the chairs to empty the temple courts of these people. 
uh, of this stuff. So what does this episode have to do with us today, those of us trying to follow Jesus in 21st century Cheltenham? Well, as I've said, the first thing is that we may have to rewrite our view of Jesus. If we're following him, we need to know him, and we want to know him, and we do know him, and we're growing in our knowing of him. But maybe this story might encourage us to rewrite our view of him. Now, I've got something up here. It's a picture of Jesus. I googled Jesus on the internet. This is one of the first things that comes up. Many of us will have seen all kinds of pictures in churches or you know, other religious places of Jesus. And if this is your view of him, which clearly it is a lot of people's view because they paint pictures like that, then, like I said, we've got to do a bit of rethinking because Jesus is not meek and mild. He is not gentle and airy-fairy. Look, he does not have tousled hair and manicured hands and porcelain skin and look like you know, he's just come out of a spa day you know, down the road. He doesn't go around kind of stroking cats and stroking children and just you know, really cool with anything and everything that's going on and is really happy to be walked over like a doormat. I mean, really. <laughs> Do you know what? Jesus is not a harmless hippie that loves us so much. He's like, I just want the best for you. Whatever you do, it's all good. I love you. You know, have a good life. Do you know, one article I read when I was reading, uh, doing a bit of background reading on this passage, I read an article by a woman who was so determined she was not going to adjust her view. She was not going to rewrite her view of Jesus that she concluded that he was having a low sugar episode in the temple. Seriously. Jesus was not having, let's just clear this up and be absolutely sure about it, he was not having a low sugar moment in the temple. He was not having a bad hair day and he was not livid like I might be when I come home at the end of a day and I see, you know, kids trainers and stuff all over my hall and I trip over them and, you know, I get irritated and I lose my rag. Jesus was not losing control, irritated that his father's house house was a mess. He may be referred to as the Lamb of God. But do you know what? He is also the Lion of Judah. He is the Lion of Judah. And the Lion of Judah, as he walks into the temple that afternoon, started roaring. And who knows what that roar sounded like in the heavenly realms. This is Jesus as the Lion of Judah roaring. I don't know if we've got, have we got that picture, Jamie? I found a picture. Much better than the last one. (laughs) He's stirred up. He's not passive. He's passionate. He's a passionate God. He's in touch with how he feels. He's in touch with what's going on. His love is a fierce love. And do you know what? He hates what is going on in the temple. He hates what he is seeing. Now, I know that word is a bit of a strong word to use in church. We don't kind of tend to use the word hate when we talk about God and when we talk about Jesus because we know that God is love and Jesus loves us all and we love the fact that Jesus loves us. But let's just acknowledge something here. We are influenced by our culture and we can bring our culture's thinking to the way we look at and think about God. And I believe that we live in a culture that increasingly says If you love and accept me, you have to love and accept and approve of everything I think, everything I do, 
all my lifestyle choices, what I do with my body, what I do with my money, whatever else, my political preferences. And if you don't agree with me, and if you don't love what I do, and if you don't love what I say, and if you don't like the way I use my body, and you don't like the way that I use my money, or you don't like you know, what comes out of my mouth, then you don't really love me. Jesus loves you passionately. And he loves me passionately. He loves every single one of us enough to die for us. But he doesn't love everything that you do. And he doesn't love everything that you say. And he doesn't love every lifestyle choice you make. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. True, authentic, biblical, God-sized, God-shaped love involves an element of hating anything that diminishes and destroys the person that you love. I love my mum. My mum died eight years ago next week. My mum had cancer. I hate cancer. The cancer was in her. But despite the fact that it was in her, I never hated her. I hated the cancer because I loved my mum. And the Bible says that God hates certain things. He doesn't hate people, but he hates certain things. You might want to do a word search on that if you're interested. He hates all kinds of things because those things damage and diminish the people that he loves. Deuteronomy 12, 31 says this, They do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. That's Moses talking about God's people. Proverbs says that God, literally says, God hates pride. He hates my pride. Proverbs says, he hates my lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates hands that devise wicked plans. He hates feet that are quick to do wrong. He hates false testimony. When I go around saying things that aren't true about other people, God hates it. He loves me, but he hates that. He hates trouble being stirred up in his family. In Isaiah, God says, I hate robbery. I hate wrongdoing. And in Mark 11, Jesus, you know, just before this incident, Jesus curses a fig tree because there's no fruit on it. God hates fruitlessness. I could go on. There are all kinds of things that God hates because he loves people precisely because he loves. And do you know what? Because he loves us, because he loves you, he will confront some of the things that you do and some of the things that you say and some of the attitudes that you have that are damaging you or your relationship with him or your relationships with others because he loves you. That's what's going on in the temple. That's what's going on in the temple. The Lion of Judah is roaring because there's this stuff going on that he hates. He's not against the political system. He's not against people making money. You know, he's not against what's going on here. There's no evidence that says you, know, you shouldn't be selling animals. He's against the extortion, yes. He's ex- against the, the corruption. But the thing that he is really against is the fact that these traders and these sellers are making it super difficult for Nathan and Miriam and the people that have come to meet with God, they're making it super difficult for these people to actually meet with God. 
These traders, these sellers, they are stopping people getting close to God and Jesus hates it. Instead of being helped as they come into the temple to get into God's presence, they're being hindered by huge prices, by thousands of animals and traders taking up the space where God had said, you know, this whole area is for people who, you know, they're not Jews, but I want them to draw near to me. You know, even the non-Jews were invited to come into the outer courts, but there was no room for them. Imagine trying to meet with God, connect with his presence, pray, listen to him, experience something of the blessing of being near him in a place that's just stuffed full of thousands of animals. The Lion of Judah wanted his children to be able to get to the Father, and it wasn't happening. And he was roaring. He didn't hate the traders and he didn't hate the sellers, but he hated what they were doing. Jesus had to confront and overturn everything that was preventing his precious children from coming to God. And in that moment, that's what he did. In that moment, he removed everything that was preventing his people connecting with him. And then five days later, he went to the cross And as he died on the cross, he removed everything forever that would prevent his people connecting with him. On the cross, he took on that flaming sword, as it were. That's what happened. He took on the sword. The sword broke him, but Jesus broke the sword. And as a result of that, the way back into into God's presence for all of us has been made possible at all times, in all places. Praise the Lord, we don't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem to meet with God anymore. We can meet with God as we're standing in Tesco's. We can meet with God when we come here. We can meet with God when we're in our car. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. Jesus took on the flaming sword and we are the beneficiaries of it. So, let's boil this right down and ask ourselves a question. What is it, given that Jesus has now cleared the way for all of us to come into his presence, to know his nearness, his affection, his blessing, and to receive all that he has for us, what is it that you or I need to confront? What is he wanting to encourage us to confront this evening in our own lives that is keeping us from a deeper connection with him? He's cleared everything out of the way. He did it in the temple. He did it completely on the cross. So what is it now that we need to confront that is keeping us from a deeper connection with him. You know, we want to lead fruitful lives, don't we? We want to see transformation in our own lives, in the lives of our friends and our families and our community. We want to have great faith. I know we want to have great faith. We're a people of faith. And this incident is sandwiched in between Jesus cursing the fig tree because there was no fruit on it, and then a conversation about the fig tree afterwards and Jesus talking about great faith. And do you know what? Fruitfulness and great faith come from being in the presence of God. We can't get them from a book. We can't get them from someone else. We get faith from being in God's presence, from having our head in his word. And we become fruitful from, having our, from being soaked in his presence and abiding in him. So what is it that we need to confront that is stopping us spending time from reading our Bibles? That is stopping us from spending time praying listening to him, talking to him, being still before him. I believe that's what Jesus wants to ask us this evening. He's cleared the way for us. So what's in between us and that time in his presence and that connection with him, 
Well, that's for us to confront and overturn. So what is it for you? Maybe for, for some of us, maybe for many of us, it's busyness. We're not hindered by busy courts full of animals and people, but we do have busy lives. Maybe it's the noise and the demands of everyday life that are just crowding out your time. You know, we all know about that. If that's you, what is Jesus encouraging you this evening to confront and overturn so that you're able to spend that time in his presence on a daily basis? Do you need to confront the lie that one day you're going to have more time? You know, we all hear that. And if that's something you've, you've kind of, you know, bought into, maybe he's encouraging you this evening to overturn that one. Maybe he's encouraging you to confront your alarm clock and to set it 15 minutes earlier each morning so that actually you can give him the beginning of your day before all of the, the mayhem and the chaos has started coming in. Maybe he wants you to confront your diary, to look at your list of priorities and look at what comes at the top and what comes at the bottom. And maybe he's, he wants you to confront your diary and move him up the list of priorities. You know, we make time to do the things that are important, don't we? Maybe he wants you to think about that. For others of us, it's not the busyness of life. You know, maybe life might be busy, but maybe we, we've kind of, you know, pretty much nailed being able to have a particular time during the day with, with, with Jesus. But maybe it's the distractions that invade that time and steal our connection with him or undermine it. You know what it's like with a phone in your hand? Well, next to you, it's the emails, it's the texts, it's the social media, it's the websites, you know, and suddenly that time has gone. You know, maybe Jesus is asking us to confront our phones and to take control of them so that actually when we come into his presence, we can hear his voice and we can talk to him because we're not being distracted by the other voices that come via the phone. Maybe for some of us, it's the internal noise that we bring you know, the internal noise of our own pain or our anxiety or our fear or our discouragement or our shame. Maybe it's the noise that rises up within us when we find a moment to sit with God and to try and concentrate on, you know, his word or, or praying or listening to him. Maybe it's our, own in, it's our own internal noise. Maybe he's encouraging us today that actually we need to confront that. And we can't get rid of our pain we can't get rid of our anxiety and we can't get rid of our discouragement. That's what happens as we spend time in his presence and walk with him. But maybe we need to confront the lie that, do you know what? I can't meet with God. I can't hear his voice while I feel like this. Maybe that's something we need to overturn. Maybe we need to confront the lie that actually God doesn't want to meet with me. I feel so ashamed about who I am and what's going on in my life. He doesn't want to meet with me until I've sorted this out. If that's you, that's a lie. Confront it. And make your way into his presence. Maybe it's a sense of paralysis. I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to read. I don't know how to hear God speak. Maybe you need to confront your paralysis and just go and talk to somebody who can help you. And keep talking until you find somebody who gives you a suggestion that really works for you. Maybe he's just encouraging you to take a stand this evening and go, do you know what? I'm not going to let anything or anyone keep me away from his presence. 
there may be other things that he's encouraging you to confront and overturn so that it's easier for you to experience more of him. There may be other things. Maybe it's a behavior pattern that actually he's been whispering to you about and you've been ignoring him. And actually it's become a barrier precisely because he's been putting his finger on it and he's been nudging you for a while. I want you to, I want you to confront that attitude or I want you to confront that behavior and I'll help you. Maybe he just wants you to confront some unforgiveness in your heart because that makes it really difficult to enjoy his presence and hear his voice. The Bible makes it clear. But do you know what? Whatever it is, he has given us everything we need. He's cleared the way for us to be able to to walk closely with God, to know his love and to experience and hear his voice. And there is so much. He wants to increase our impact in this world. He wants to increase his life within us so that it flows through us. And he wants to grow greater fruitfulness within us and increase our faith. But do you know what, friends? That happens as a result of spending time with him and walking in his presence. And he's done the confronting that he's needed to do. Now it's over to us. So why don't we stand? And we're going to pray. For those of you that are visiting or it's your first time here, welcome. It's a bit late to say that, but, <laughs> but we just like to end our times together by just waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Holy Spirit, just inviting him to continue to work in our hearts and lives. We offer an opportunity and a time to pray for each other. We have a bit of a messy ending, but it's all good. So why don't you close your eyes? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are alive. We thank you that we don't worship a dead God, but a living God. We thank you, Jesus, that you are alive and you welcome us into your presence 24-7, every moment of every day, wherever we are. And we thank you that we can know your presence. And we thank you that there is life in your presence. And we thank you that you welcome us into your presence. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you minister the presence of the Father and the Son to us. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. We ask you to come now. We say welcome. We say you are welcome again into our hearts. Would you come? Would you come in this moment and minister the presence of the living God? Our heavenly Father, our loving Jesus, would you come and minister his presence to us now? So now we're just going to wait for a moment.
some of you can just feel just a really gentle sense of peace just washing over you. That's the presence of the Lord. Just welcome him. Just welcome him. It's that sense just of, you know, you might feel that you just want to breathe deeply. That's the nearness of the Holy Spirit. Just breathe him in. Just breathe him in. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you here. We welcome you and we say more. More of you. I actually feel that for some of one or two of you, he's just bringing a fresh sense of joy, actually. It's just a fresh sense of joy. That's him. That's him. More of you, Lord. More of you. More of you. Some of you, he's just showing you in this moment what it is that you need to to confront to make more room for him in your life. And maybe that's just come in, in, in the form of an impression or a thought or an idea. That's the Holy Spirit. Take note of it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.